heavy door-to-door combat in which every door you go in had to be fragged first. And they had countermeasures. They would chip a hole through the concrete, dig a hole in the floor, and put a concrete pillar, concrete chunk, in front of that hole between them and the door of the house. So imagine yourself coming into a living room, and you throw a frag, and it blows up inside that, and it destroys everything in the room, except they're behind a piece of concrete in a hole with a grass mat pulled over them. And as soon as, boom, they hear that go off, they stand up from that mat, stick an AK around that block of concrete, and just light up the door. So the first one in, it's, it's brutal. Today, we celebrate our veterans of the United States of America military forces, the brave men and women who sacrificed and defended our right according to our Constitution to live as Americans as a free nation. Hi, and welcome to this special edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. I'm Byron Tyler, and today, if you are a veteran, we salute you. We thank you again for your service, your sacrifice, and for those men and women who have gone on before us fighting for our freedom. And today, in honor of veterans, we want to welcome U.S. Marine James Phillips, combat veteran to Iraq. James, it's so good to have you on the show today. How are you doing? I'm wonderful. How are you, Byron? I'm doing well now. So you make your home down in Mississippi. Is it Manatee, Mississippi? Mantee. Mantee, okay. It's actually James Charles Phillips. I go by James Charles. James Charles. name there. Let's get the official name. So it's James Charles Phillips. That's correct. And it's Mantee, Mississippi. Now, exactly where's Mantee? Mantee is about two and a half hours southeast of Memphis, uh, southeast of Grenada also. That's a town of about 160. My wife and I have a farm about 10 miles from Main Street, so... Ten miles will bring us to a town of 160. And that's where you go get your groceries yeah, right. and <laughs> do we're, your business? We actually go a little further than that and go to Starkville. Starkville? It's about 45 minutes from Starkville. Does that make you a Mississippi State fan in the you know, sports world? You know, I went to school there, but once I see communist moves, I cut them out of the picture. They play a championship the other day. I didn't even check to see who won because, at best, it gives my children a dream to play sports there. And I don't want them involved in a communist organization. Lead by example. Right. Well, and you talk about your children now. Uh, God has blessed you and your wife. And you've yes. got, is this right? You've got, you're a father of nine. Yes. And you've got two sets of twins. Yes. How did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I got to I got to flirt my, with my wife and we got things got carried away and boom. <laughs> we went from five to nine, like seemingly in a snap of a finger. Well, but, uh, it was just it's the best thing that's ever happened to us. Oh, well, you uh, know, just the other day my daughter in law has a sister and she's got five and she just gave birth to twins, so she's got seven now, but yes. she's not close to your nine. Well, that was us. We had five, that's all we wanted. My wife slipped a couple in on us. And I, I joked and told her I owed her a set of twins, and, and God gave them to us. And oh. it's just, you know, we pray over them hmm. a lot. Yeah. And they are becoming little prayer warriors. What are their ages? Their ages are 14, 12, 11, 10, 7, 
<laughs> I'm putting you on the spot. A set of, a set of four-year-olds and a set of uh, newborns. Yeah. So just had a second set of twins. So you got plenty of farmhands then. Yes. And, you know, I've personally been in some real tough parts of the world, been in third-world countries that were thriving, been in third-world countries that were tanking, uh, and been in combat zones. We've got some shortages coming. There's too many manipulated bubbles in the market. And if you back out, we have the shortages coming. So one of the things we're doing to, you know, we, we like eating three times a day. Myself, not so much, but the children like three times a day. I kind of got hooked on the twice a day, once or twice a day in, while I was in other parts of the world. But my children like three times a day. And so I wanted to be able to eat three times a yeah. day. So we're planting things. We're saving seeds. We're planting our own food and save every single seed that comes from organic food that we produce. And they love it. They're coming alive. They they learn to pray by putting their hands on a little plant and asking God to give it nutrients and strength and to bring rain in its due time. And there's such a connection between Father God and simple things in life. And it's just I'm very proud of my children, but it's in a it's in a way that we pray over them. Yeah. And then all the places that I miss being a good dad. He just pours his grace in. Aren't you thankful for that grace? Oh, oh my goodness. So the, the product, the children are not a product of me. They're the product of a gracious God. Yes. And it's just beautiful. <laughs> oh, James, that is so beautiful. And as a father of three sons and some granddaughters and another grandson about to be born any day. You're a rich man. I am a very rich man. Okay, so where were you the day before you signed up with the United States Marine Corps? So I was in class. I was rodeoing. I was training horses. As a, I had a business training horses. I was growing that business. My heart was in waking up in a new town every, you know, every Thursday, Friday, Saturday night rodeoing. And I was going to college just because, you know, culture said I was supposed to. And did you go to Mississippi State on a rodeo scholarship? No, I went to EMCC on academic scholarships. So believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> and the wheels turn. <laughs> you know, free thinkers that are well-read almost always get excellent grades. But I was blessed to be home-educated. It worked really well. College was a piece of cake, except for certain <laughs> certain maths. I could not tie to how I would ever use that. And I, I struggled in when it got into multiplying matrices times other matrices. <laughs> I just couldn't wrap my mind around it. Oh, but my. I still came out of there with a C. Yeah. It was only That's commendable. C in, that I got in college. And my dad came. He was like, what? What? Got, son, did you go to class? I was like, yeah, Dad. I had a hard time understanding it. He was like, son, this is unacceptable. I said, Dad you realize that you're not paying for it, and I'm not living at home. <laughs> it's a C, but it's my C. Yeah, but you're still at Phillips. So you're in a classroom. <laughs> the next day something took place. Well, actually, they, they shook our nation. While I was in the classroom, uh, one of the planes hit the Twin Towers. Oh, it was the same day? Yes, yes. And so I come out in between classes, and time to see another plane hit. And to subdue the panic... They said classes continue. They had a very strict attendance policy. So everybody had to go back to class with this reeling in your gut and in your mind, like, what is happening? We're going to war. We've been attacked. And so I left after that next class and went to find a recruiter. And I knew him. He had tried to recruit me in the past, and I just was not interested in being a peacetime warrior. But I told him, 
country call. It's time to join. So he drew up a packet. I told him I would wait until we declared war. So about 31 days later is when I signed, when Bush declared war for, you know, finding weapons of mass destruction, supposedly. There was a real flimsy story, and it has since come unspooled to anyone who will ask God to lead him to the truth. But for me, I rallied to the flag. And so you went to boot camp? Basic, sure did. Basic training, where Paris did you Island. go? Paris Island. Right. The Marines top, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> if you ask anyone from Paris Island, that's where Marines are made. And uh, But they have another camp over there, somewhere on the West Coast. Was it Hollywood, somewhere around yep. there? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had a club owner tell me once in San Diego, he said, I've been running clubs and bars for 35 years. He said, the worst I've ever had a club wrecked was about seven or eight Marines from Paris Island against seven or eight Marines from Hollywood. And the whole argument is about whose boot camp was toughest. <laughs> he said they wrecked the whole place. <laughs> James, uh, when did you find out that you would be deployed to Iraq, or did you even know that? Well, I missed the deployment. And so I requested MAST, every Marine, because of the Marine Corps is a partner of the Navy. So a lot of these old laws are from the high seas. And so every sailor, anyone on ship, has a right to go before the admiral at the mast if they feel like their chain of command has not given them justice. And so I had tried many times to get attached to a combat-deployed unit. My recruiter had, had basically shuffled everything that he had promised in order to put me in a place that he got a better bonus. So I had a little bit to work with. Once we dug that out, I had a little bit of ammo to negotiate with. But I couldn't, you know, everybody took the idea that, hey, son, you'll get your chance one day. But the second battle of Fallujah, according to them at the time, was going to be the last bastion of evil. And that's Operation Phantom Fury. Correct. Uh, the second chapter of that fight to take Fallujah from Iraqi insurgents, known to Marines as the bloodiest urban combat since the Vietnam War, Way City, did you witness examples of combat heroism there when that battle took place? You were involved with that, right? Yes, it was actually a two-week push into the city. So from the first shot fired, when we made the advance, it was a little over two weeks. And, and, and uh, your actual job assignment, what was that at the time, and who were you attached to? Starting out, I was attached to um, the sniper guns and Mike Battery is the affectionate, what we were nicknamed. But we were tow-behind howitzers, 155 howitzers. So the big guns pull the string, also called string jerkers. (laughs) You pull the string and it fires the 308 round that burns the primer that sets off the big gun. You've got forward observers, which is where I was supposed to be, but my recruiter shuffled me, with infantry in the city calling for, I think we put 78 rounds of high explosive on a mosque that a sniper was in one day. So that's probably close to $150,000 worth of explosive but we got him, and he quit shooting Marines. So wherever high explosives needed or Willie Pete or flares, you know, at night if they've got something happening, they'll shoot a flare, and it'll hang down in a parachute and light up the sky and give our guys light to see. Things such as that. So that was six miles outside the city. Then once we took the city, we rotated in and out on patrols, cleaning up, finding weapons caches, blowing them. This was door-to-door combat, wasn't it? Yes. It was extremely brutal, heavy door-to-door combat in which every door you go in had to be fragged first. And they had countermeasures. They would chip a hole through the concrete, dig a hole in the floor, and put a concrete pillar, concrete chunk, in front of that hole between them and the door of the house. So imagine yourself coming into a living room, 
and you throw a frag, and it blows up inside that, and it destroys everything in the room, except they're behind a piece of concrete in a hole with a grass mat pulled over them. And as soon as, boom, they hear that go off, they stand up from that mat, stick an AK around that block of concrete, and just light up the door. So the first one in, it's, it's brutal. Oh, my. I had one friend that guy emptied a mag at him almost point blank, and it cut his side burn on one side, cut him all the way down the side of the head, took a bunch of stitches, and hit him in his vest and the shoulder on the other side. So God just kind of made him almost untouchable, except for some necks and scratches. Oh, my. It dropped his uh, side burn down. They stitched it back up. He mashed the round out of his shoulder because his vest had stopped most of it, his flak jacket. He popped it out. They just put some salve on that and a Band-Aid, and he right back in it the same day. Right back in. So there's some heroes there. I was, during that that most brutal door-to-door time, I was on guns shooting into whatever they called for. How do you, James, mentally make it through a day of battle or even an hour of battle? How do you do that? Wow. That's, um, for me, it was a matter of principle. They hit us on our home soil. So for me, it was taking a fight to the door of evil. Whatever evil that would come to my homeland, it was taking it to them. I had a grasp of good versus evil, uh, and we were fighting some evil people. The Mujahideen were brutal to the neighborhoods they lived in. So you have these fighters that would live in these neighborhoods, and the people would be so oppressed. I mean, they're raping children before breakfast. It's just part of their culture. It's what fighters get what fighters want whenever fighters want it. And so you have fathers that have to stand there holding other children while somebody takes turns oh my in the next room with their wife oh my or daughters it was hell were you living in christ as a soldier there were you a believer yes absolutely but i did not know how to listen and you know how samuel i just read this other day to my family and it stood out to me so much i've read it so many times but it never touched me how It said there was a time that Samuel did not know the Lord, and he did not hear his voice. And then God spoke to him, and from that day forward, he heard his voice. And there are those, you seek God in the morning, and sometimes you don't have time to pray over a decision you have to make. You stay prayed up, and as soon as that hits you in the face, you know in your gut which way God would have you to go, and you move out on principle. It's instant obedience to the king. And I was not there yet. I prayed every day. I read my Bible every day. I encouraged men. I gave the gospel to my Marines on my right and left, some of which has come to fruition. (laughs) And it's absolutely beautiful to see. But I was not hearing his voice at that time. James, how did you know who to trust among the civilian Iraqi population during that time? Or can you? We didn't. In fact, before we took the city— We were staged up to begin the assault, and the night before, the head or the general of the POB, the Public Order Battalion, just gathered up all the plans and walked across enemy lines into the city, welcomed by his brothers. We had a rat in the middle the whole time. So we had to stop that assault and re-diagram everything so that they would know points of entry and our plans. I mean, so— So you really didn't have friends among the Iraqi people. We did. But we couldn't trust them per se. You know, in Luke 10, it talks about finding a man of peace. And you stay in his house, eat his food, eat what's put before you. I've learned to live that in other third world countries since then, running Bibles into Africa, etc. 
And you can actually eat things that will make anyone else sick. But if you eat it in obedience, because it was set before you, because you made contact with a man of peace that may or may not follow Jesus, you'll be just fine. And I found those people of peace there. You know, per se, you didn't know who you could trust. But you can see a man of peace when you look for him. What makes America great and worth fighting for? That is very interesting that you ask that. We have a constitution that is 245 years old. And it was gridlocked. When when our founding fathers were striving to write it, they wanted something that would stand the test of time. And it took five months of them arguing different points, 15, 20 hours a day sometimes, about what issues should be federal issues, what issues should be state issues, and what issues should neither the state nor the federal government partake in. Leave that to a man who is sovereign in the sight of God and his family. And they got nowhere. And then... Benjamin Franklin stood up and said, if a sparrow cannot fall without his notice, how can a nation rise without his aid? Let us go to Providence and ask for his wisdom. And so they prayed right then on the spot. And every day after that, now we have a tradition today of Congress opening with prayer. It's like a two-minute, the last prayer under Biden was to some Indian God. We have to confess our country leaving God. But do you know that those men prayed for two hours, paced and walked and prayed out loud and took turns and prayed at the same time for two hours a day. And once they went to God, they were able to write the Constitution in about four and a half, five days. And 90% of it is unchanged this day. Thomas Jefferson cleaned up a little bit, and it was ratified after that. John Adams was one of the signers in 1776, says government is instituted for the common good, for the protection, safety, prosperity, and happiness of the people, and not for profit, honor, or private interest of any man, family, or class of men. Therefore, the people alone have an incontestable, unalienable, and indefensible right to institute government and to reform, alter, or totally change the same when their protection, safety, prosperity, and happiness require it. Yes. When you understand that that comes from Father God and not from the federal government, it leaves an empowered individual. Do you know that the average constitution or government in the world and the rest of the world is 17 years? 17 years. You have countries where a 90-year-old man has seen seven revolutions, and yet ours stands out like a titan. It was because it came after praying to God. It was inspired by God, and herein freedom is found. We're given everything we need for life and godliness through Christ Jesus. He was incorporated into our founding documents. They studied John Locke. They studied Plato. They went to a lot of resources to come up with this document. You know, the Bible was referenced 34% of the time. Second place came in, I think it was John Locke, at 7%. This is the bulk of where our Constitution came from. And when you go into these other countries, they don't have it. And James, what is it that most Americans have forgotten about freedom? They forgot where it came from. And so when another entity that has not had the authority to usurp or constrict your freedom begins to usurp or constrict, people receive that. And they knuckle under to that. Instead of saying, I do not play this game, I will not comply. Where is America heading in your estimation as a nation? That answer has so many levels. On the outside, it's heading off a cliff straight to concentration camps under another name. I've seen things China did in Africa while I was there. When I talked about it, I got kicked off of social media. Our social media platforms are owned by Chinese interests. 
if you don't believe me, speak against it and see how long your account lasts. <laughs> and this was just an eyewitness account, okay? By the way, I'm Constitution Cowboy on Telegram, and I've been able to put firsthand stuff that I see and have seen and people I interview on there, and that's not been shut down. As you've watched the horrific things unfold in Afghanistan, what's your view of that? I'm uncertain on that. The eyeballs that I have there, the communications I have with people that are there, are within a controlled narrative, meaning they're getting told the same thing we are, so I'm not able to validate if all that's happening like it's purported to us or not. I smell a big rat. This is what I know as an encouragement. We are winning. The side of right is winning, but it is not being reported. So if the listener does not feel like we are winning, they're getting their news from the wrong sources. Scrap all the sources and ask God to show you two things, the truth and where you can personally contribute to freedom, freedom in Christ and freedom in this nation. So you're saying, James, that you're seeing signs of America's turning to God, seeking his face in repentance. Yes, yes. The awakening is happening. People are returning to God's Word that have not spent much time in it in the last years. You have pastors leaving churches that have become asleep and starting movements of personal action. You have pastors that are starting to paint houses on the side and have Bible studies in their home because they feel God calling them to more action, and it's happening everywhere. You know, very quickly, I had to, when I began to realize and meet people that were on the ground, who were at the Pentagon, were there when it happened, that bid contracts on things that, when the store began to come together, and I realized that the Twin Towers was not what it was purported to be, I realized I had blood on my hands before a lie. It's very complicated because we did liberate a people over there, and people cried and hugged us. So we did some good, but it it originated in a lie, and I had to get on my face before God and confess that I have, like David, I'm a bloody man, and God forgave that. It is my duty to no longer drink the narrative, but to go straight to God and say, God, reveal the truth. And if that means exposing someone that I have trusted in the past, so be it, but lead me to the truth. James, 35 members of the 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines, have died by suicide since 2003, and that surpasses the number of Marines the unit lost during the Second Battle at Fallujah. How have you tried to support your comrades in the aftermath of that battle at Fallujah? My unit has lost 11 since I returned, and it was uh, by their own hand or by issues that came out of darkness and a pain that just could not be quelled. For me, I spent about 10 years not sleeping. And uh, at 27 years old, I looked older than I do now. And people thought I was approaching 50. People I'd known, okay. For me, it was, uh, had to address my health and learn to walk with the Lord in a different way. Not just, not just read His Word and pray, but come from a different place, a listening. What would you have for me to do next? One of the things that my wife and I are doing is building a retreat out at our farm. So we've got some cabins we're working on. We have a lot of warriors come through and stay anywhere from overnight to a couple weeks to six months and that's something that we do it's not a 501c3 we don't take donations for it it's something we do as the lord allows out of pocket and it has become a place for when that warrior says okay i'm ready god is calling i don't know what he wants and i don't know how my relationship is to that my calling is to say i have walked this path What you're carrying is too heavy to carry alone. It's too heavy even for me to carry with you 
if you insist on carrying it. But there is a cross. I was there with you, and the peace you see in my eyes, I, I promise you, comes from laying it down. He said, come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You can lay that down and walk away from it. Amen. And there is such a peace and strength from that. Something you just said, I think, is key as we close our program today, James. And I think it's something that we can all take to heart. What would you have me do next? That's the question I think that we all as believers should ask that question. Yes. What would you have me do next? Yes. And that that often we ask – I have asked that question in the past from a place of, Lord, I am this. I am a, I am a Mississippi Highway Patrol, and I've got a career. What would you like me to do within this career? Well, he might have something entirely in another chapter, but if I think that I have to be within this space – That question is best asked on the floor, prostrate in a quiet place before God, confessing every single thing that is unconfessed. And like Job, even the things that we're too immature to know is a sin, confess that too. Confess the sins of your family, the sins that have been done on your land in generations past. We found out about a guy got stabbed in a knife fight at a card game on our farm before I was born. I confessed murder. I confessed it and asked God to heal the soil. And by the way, an African brother showed me how to do that. And we went from a farm that could never grow anything. Last year, after that prayer of healing over our soil and praying around our farm, we had branches breaking from so much fruit on trees that had never grown (laughs) (laughs) food. Praise God. So that's where the question is asked. And then that, the first thing he says, we must act on it. And it will lead to the next thing. But if we put it off, surely not. It's That's, a step of obedience. Yes. Obedience opens the next set of orders. You can't get the big orders if you haven't completed the last ones. James, God bless you, my dear brother. Thank you for helping us salute our veterans today, sharing your story. Thank you for being on mission for Christ. Well, if you see a veteran today... Rather than say thank you for your service, if you'll say, welcome home, there's no awkward moment after that in which they don't know what to say. You'll see the biggest smile, you tell them welcome home, and if they're Vietnam vets, a lot of times start crying on the spot because they've never heard that. Wow. Thank you for that. Well, friends, that's all the time we have on this edition of Mid-South Viewpoint. A salute to our veterans. Thank you for listening. I'm Byron Tyler, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.